Okay, before we get going, I should just let you know that you're going to hear the odd F word here and there. It's only ever used as a means of emphasis and it's part of how I speak. Gathering evidence and data on what makes us happy requires us to observe or measure something. But it's hard to directly observe how happy someone is. So when we collect data, we typically ask people how they feel. Much then depends on what we ask them and how. This series is brought to you with the support of the LSE. And in this episode, the letter E for evidence. In this episode, we'll distinguish between evaluations of overall happiness or life satisfaction and experiences of happiness on a moment-to-moment basis. Now, you might expect any academic to say that more research is needed, and it certainly is, and we could also do with some more money too. We also need to be cautious about how we interpret existing evidence. Sometimes we might make causal stories from correlational data. It's often really hard to say that X truly caused Y. We need randomised controlled trials for that, and they often don't exist. Ideally, we'd like them at large scale too, and that's very rare. In research in psychology, there's also a replication crisis. That means that it's often very hard to take one study's findings and reproduce them elsewhere, even sometimes under the very same experimental conditions. All in all, this means we need to be very cautious about how we interpret the evidence. The measure matters. You might love your job in an evaluative sense, but be miserable day to day. You might work long hours and get very little sleep, for example. Academics often use the term subjective well-being, or SWB, to capture the rich array of ways in which we can ask people about how their lives are going and how they feel. So let's get behind some of the numbers. In 2008, the Office for National Statistics, the ONS in the UK, asked Professor Lord Richard Layard, maybe the most famous happiness academic of them all, and me to advise on how to measure subjective well-being for the purposes of monitoring progress and informing policy decisions. The most widely used question in the world of happiness research and policy is something along the lines of, overall, how satisfied are you with your life these days? With responses on a scale, say from zero, not at all, to 10 completely. So we decided to ask this question. Richard would probably have stopped there as he's a big fan of it. I'm less enamored by this question. I worry that it's too much of a reflection on life rather than focusing directly on how we feel day to day. So we persuaded the ONS to ask another question about how happy people felt yesterday on the same 11-point scale. We then persuaded them to ask how anxious people felt yesterday. It is possible to feel both happy and anxious, and also the latter is arguably more important for policy. We can also be happy doing things that feel worthwhile, even if those activities aren't the most fun use of our time. So we persuaded the ONS to ask a question about how worthwhile people thought their daily activities were. I'm very proud that the ONS4 has been running this question alongside the other three for many years now. When I talk about what makes us happy, it's based on tons of data like that gathered by the ONS and by other big surveys such as Understanding Society in the UK and the German Socioeconomic Panel in Germany, which have asked large samples of people about their happiness for over two decades now. I'm a senior research advisor at the Gallup organisation and they gather more data than you can shake a stick at, including happiness data from around the world as part of the Gallup World Poll. The World Poll has close to 2 million people in it. The surveys ask about happiness and a whole bunch of other stuff, like how much people earn, their age, their job, their marital status, and so on. The evidence comes from people like you, not from what I think should or should not matter. Also, bear in mind 
that those things that really do affect happiness come out of what we call regression analysis, seeing how much income, for example, affects happiness scores, and not by asking people how much they think their income matters. In terms of how people feel day to day, well, age becomes much less important. The patterns are much more complicated than they are in life satisfaction data. Unemployment isn't as bad, at least so far as pleasure is concerned. But mental health shows up really significantly and shows up much more than physical health does. And I guess the other headline finding from experience data is that relationships matter. Being with people that you enjoy being with, intimately or otherwise, is really good for our happiness. So you might be asking whether money matters. Well, it does in evaluative happiness, which always increases in income. But there are diminishing marginal returns. That is, the more you make, the less your happiness will increase from each additional unit of income. Of course, the evidence is constantly changing. And in experiences, some of the earlier work showed that money made people happier up to about $75,000 in the US, but didn't make much of a difference thereafter. Later analysis showed a very steady rise in income over the entire range using the same data. A reanalysis of those data confirmed the flattening pattern only for the least happy people. So happiness increases steadily amongst happier people and can sometimes accelerate in the happiest group, but not for the least happy. The evidence shows that what we mean by happiness and how we measure it matters a lot. When we look at our lives from an evaluative overall perspective, we focus on the big stuff, like our job, where we live, and how much we earn. And we neglect the small stuff, such as what we do and how well we sleep. From an experience or day-to-day -day perspective, happiness is in the small stuff. Sleep matters more to our mood than pretty much anything else. When people tell me what they think makes them happy, for example, when I give talks, it's usually the big stuff, money, job, etc., or some other story like finding the one. Sleep rarely comes up. But it would be wise if you focus on the small stuff. If you're wanting to earn more money, rather than think about getting rich, you might want to focus on whether you get enough sleep. The distinction between evaluation and experience is not only important for individuals, but plays out in the workplace too, particularly in the ways that staff well-being is usually assessed. Most staff surveys focus on evaluations of how good a boss is, etc., when arguably it's our experiences when we're with the boss that really count. It's also important to note that what may be a source of misery for one person might not be for another. Maybe you have a friend who claims to love their job but constantly complains about their colleagues, or another friend who's happily married but constantly compares their marriage to a prison sentence. In your own life, are there areas where you say one thing but feel another when it comes to your happiness? It's important to remember that happiness is subjective, so what brings joy to one person may not bring joy to another. But by observing what others do, without blindly following their lead, we can make decisions that are more aligned with our own desires and values. This is why it's vital to collect your own evidence. Check in with your daily activities and how they make you genuinely feel. But don't overdo it. You don't want to spend all your time thinking about what makes you happy and have no time left for cracking on and actually being happy. Remember, lost happiness is lost forever. It's of course possible for some activities to make us miserable in the short run for benefits into the longer term. Education is an obvious example, but you better be fucking sure that that investment of your time and the sacrifice of current happiness will be worth it. And besides, 
you'll get much more out of your education in the long run and short run if you actually enjoy learning. There is evidence to show what generally makes people feel better, but it would be worthwhile to generate your own evidence. What makes you feel happier? What lessons can you learn from the people around you? In a nutshell, the small day-to-day things matter more than the big stuff found in the stories we tell ourselves. By paying attention to what makes you feel good on a day-to-day basis, you'll be in a better position to be happier for longer. My ambition in creating Get Happier goes way beyond simply offering a free copy and ending it there. I intend to foster a community of individuals who can make society happier using rigorous and relevant evidence with minimal effort. Subscribe to my Substack where I share resources and insights so that all of us, individual citizens, employees, employers, parents and policymakers, can get happier.